right, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We start a new chapter this evening. And uh, so let's just read here the first five or six verses. So, And he, he entered into the synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. The he here is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. And they watched him. The they is the Pharisees, the leaders. And, there, um, and they watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he said unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace, and when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was, was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. So again, we're, we're, we have an issue here where the Lord's going to uh, work a miracle. He, he's going to heal this guy, and then their reaction is to get together with their arch enemy, you know, an enemy of my enemy is now my friend, kind of idea, and try to kill, they're laying the plans to go kill him. So, uh, the, <laughs> rather than being excited and happy that the guy with the withered hand was healed, they're now doing something else, and they're going after him in a different way. So, when we look here at verse 1, and he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand, and they watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. So, again, they're looking at him. They're, they're, looking, they're watching him. They're, they're paying attention to every little detail. And, and, again, we go right back up to chapter 2 where we ended last week, verse 23. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. And that Sabbath day question that is here. And his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath that which is not lawful? And we, we, it's harvest time. They're picking through. We went back and looked in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That wasn't illegal. It wasn't breaking the law because they had, the, they had that issue of the gleanings. And they allowed the poor to do that. And they could eat it if they were hungry. They couldn't pick it, put it in their basket, and go sell it. Remember, you know, we looked at that in Proverbs there where he says, hey, you can't eat it but uh, to sell it. You can't harvest it, I'm sorry, but you can eat it. And they're doing it on the Sabbath. But notice what the Pharisees say, that which is not lawful, the end of verse 24. But it was lawful. It just was against their tradition. It, was, it went against their religious traditions. So the Lord illustrates it, verse 26, he, uh, I'm sorry, verse 25, and he said unto them, have ye never read? And, and again, the Lord is using the scripture to nail these guys. He's not saying, well, my opinion, or what, this, he's saying, have ye not read what David did when he had need? And again, that's the issue, is having the need. 
and was a hungered, he and they that were with him. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread. Now watch, which is not lawful to eat, <laughs> but for the priest. Now when David did that, he broke the rules. But yet, who gave him the showbread to eat was the high priest, Abathar. He did it. We went back there to 1 Samuel 21 and noticed that. And gave also to them which were with him. So, the Lord illustrates this out with David and the showbread because of the issue of the need, the moral side of it. Again, the top, the Ten Commandments, nine of them are moral, morality. Here's how you live life in relationship to God, the first four, and then in relationship to others, the back five. The one that's kind of stuck in the middle is a ceremonial issue, and that's the issue of the Sabbath day. And we, we looked at that. We went back. Why is the Sabbath day? So what the Lord's going to do here with these guys is he's literally going to say, what's, in more, what's more important? Healing someone sick who has a need, feed, hungry, feeding, or keeping some ceremony that doesn't really help anybody. It's a ceremonial feast. Well, obviously, and again, we looked at this over the, you know, John there and so forth about you guys go out and feed your animals and water your animals on the Sabbath day. Why? They need it. You, you know, if your ox is stuck in a ditch, help, help your neighbor and that type of thing. The problem was, was that the Pharisees had, had developed, come over to Mark 7, they had developed the, their own vain religious system. And in Scripture, it's called Baal worship. And it starts in Genesis uh, there, and it goes all the way down to culmination in the Antichrist and the false prophet in the book of the Revelation. But if you look at Mark 7, if you look there at, well, verse 1, Then came together unto him cert, uh, the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of the disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. There is no law given by Moses to the nation of Israel to wash your hands before you eat your meal. You know, we, I always thought that was mom's rule and grandma's rule. <laughs> well, these guys have made it into a religious activity, and it's in trouble. Verse it got them in, verse, in, in trouble. Verse 7, Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. The end of verse, well, verse 8, For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the traditions of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full, full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. The result of that is verse 13. What have they done? They've made the making the word of God of none effect through your traditions which ye have delivered and many such like things do ye. So back here in Mark 2, when they look at him and they say, they see him do this on the Sabbath, that's the, that just stuck them because they had made the Sabbath into something that it was not designed to be in. So there in 2.27, the Lord kind of corrects them. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. 
that's exactly opposite of what religion says. Religion says you got to keep it or you're going to die. Well, that's what Moses said back in there. So we just make that today, you know, and it won't be a real death. It'll be a spiritual this or that. And they do this dance with it. But yet, what did, what did Christ just say? The Sabbath was to benefit man. It has a purpose. That purpose was to teach man the purpose that God had in creation. And we went back to Genesis 2, and we looked there at Genesis 2 when he blessed the day, and then he sanctifies the day, and he blesses it, speaks well of it, sets it there, then sanctifies it, sets it apart, because he's got a purpose. And that purpose, again, verse 28, therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. That's a great statement by Christ. Basically, he's saying, I'm the one who's going to accomplish what the Sabbath represents, what it's all about. And then verse 1, 3, 1, and he entered into again into the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there they are doing their stuff and everything. And yet, right there in the midst of them is a guy with a withered hand. And the Pharisees, the leaders, are watching him, waiting for him to heal him so they can pounce on him. And again, not heal him in a, as in a good, it would be a good thing to heal the man. Yet, all they wanted to know was, and see, was, is he going to heal him on the Sabbath? They didn't care anything about whether or not he healed the guy or not. So, and again, so here's a, here's a miracle, a healing. Luke 8, verse 1, he's preaching and showing the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. So, the, the healing here, the, the sign that we're going to look at, come back with me to Exodus 4 has to do with the, this issue of validating the doctrine, the message that the Lord is teaching. He's teaching them, I am the Messiah. All these signs and things I'm doing match what the prophets say the Messiah would be doing. So he's making a claim to be Jehovah, and then he backs that claim up. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then he backs it up. And a lot of that, if you have to remember, Paul's there in 1 Corinthians, he said the Jews require a sign. So they need to see something. So here we're going to see it, Exodus chapter 4. The issue about the withered hand, that's what's, okay, that's what's important in, in this because the withered hand is going to literally dim, be a picture, a sign, a type, a, a scream, an announcement of, Here's your spiritual condition, Israel, and you know what? You're not capable of doing what the Sabbath is requiring you to do in, the, in its doctrine, okay? Now, just watch this. Exodus 4. So in Exodus 4, you've got Israel. They've come, they're coming out of Egypt. Or you, he's talking to Moses. Chapter 3 is the burning bush. He's getting Moses ready. Verse 1, And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is in thine hand? And he said, A rod. Now, pay, watch the hand thing. He says, there, You got something in your hand. What do you got? You got a rod. But notice... 
the hand is going to represent him going to Pharaoh to get Israel released. Moses' ministry was to go to Pharaoh, get Israel's, Israel released, take them to the promised land. That's his ministry. Okay? Now, the back half of that gets a little interrupted because of their transgressions, so we got a law added. And then Moses becomes the great lawgiver. But notice verse 3, and he said, cast it on the ground, and he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand, and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. So again, hand, he's, he's got ministry, he, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. Now, when he goes before Pharaoh, you know, Janus and Jamborees, the guys named by Paul there, what does he do? They throw their rods down snake, he throws his down, king snake wins, and off we go. But the issue is, the issue here with the hand, he's going to use his hand and his ministry and the hand, it's to give him a sign to, that demonstrates there's a purpose here from God that I'm going to go and do. Okay? Verse 5. Verse 4, and the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand, pick it up. Verse 5, that they may believe, see, um, and it became, the end of verse 4, and it became a rod in his hand, that, there, again, purpose, the intent, they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. So when they see that, what will they know? You are the messenger from God. You are the deliverer. You are who you're going to say you are. Verse 7, And the Lord said, Furthermore, put now thy hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. And he said, Put thy hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again and plucked it out of his bosom. And behold, it was turned again as the other flesh so you got this hand issue a ministry you see the man with the withered hand over here in mark 3 that hand can't function it can't work it's withered it's all crumb it's all this this form so the man in mark 3 is going to be assigned to israel about the fact that they are not functioning properly the fact that they don't have the capacity you know, I was trying to think about how do you, you, you know, I can't do a withered hand, but when you think driving the school buses over the years, we would have kids on the special needs buses that had deformities in their hand, and they had to learn how to, how to use that hand or not. That's what the picture is. Come to 1 Kings 13. It's the fact that they don't have the capacity to function in the role that God gave them. So when you think about... Mark 3, the Lord's going in to heal this withered hand, man with the withered hand. He's doing it on the Sabbath. You know, again, the Sabbath, six days, that last day is a day of rest. Not that God was weary. Isaiah says he never wearies. But rather he rests in that what? The job's done. The work is done. And when the work is done, you stand back and you say, wow, looks pretty good. The other day at the house, I set up my side yard a little bit to work on my old truck. And I was like, man, looks good. Okay, I can get back to work maybe. 
Then it got hot, and I'm like, all right, we'll wait. You know. Then it cooled off. So when it figures out, probably about January, it'll figure out what it's going to do around here. You know, it's amazing. 30 years in the desert, and it's still October is such a mystery. <laughs> you know, it's like, what happened here? But the thing is, is he, he's got a purpose in it. And that Sabbath day, that Sabbath rest, and we looked at it, the purpose of it was for God to come and dwell. And to dwell with creation, dwell with man. He had that habitation. He picked out that land over there in Jerusalem, in Palestine, that whole crescent in there. And they, again, they couldn't do the job. So you come here now to 1 Kings, and you're going to see a king with a withered hand show up. And, and it, you know, I, you think about what God was doing with that Sabbath. It, it's, a, it's a sign, and it's a sign given to the nation of Israel. I said it last time, Adam to Moses, nobody kept the Sabbath day because there was no nation, no one, no agency to go and do and accomplish what, the, what that Sabbath day represented. So it became a sign of God's purpose in creation to come and dwell with man on the earth. But then what happened? Remember last week we were talking about Thursday of the next week? Sin entered the equation. So God had to pause that come and dwell with man aspect and then go deal with the sin question, the sin problem. So Genesis 3.15, there's a promise of the seed of the woman, which then becomes the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob, into the 12 boys, into the nation of Israel there. You know, and, and then, you know, 12, can you imagine 12 tribes and you got to figure out which one's got who, where is the Lord coming from? And so he narrows it down for them. And it's all designed to, then God gives birth to Israel out of Egypt there so that they can come in and then through them, through the seed line, through the nation now in the earth, his plans, his purpose, the whole goal of creation can be fulfilled in first kings 13 we see a sim a, a a guy with a withered hand now where we're at in first kings is david's dead solomon's dead jeroboam and rehoboam are fighting over the nation now, Rehoboam was the older. He should have been the king of all, all of it, but Jeroboam didn't want it. So chapter 12, or we're in 13, right? I told you 13. Look back in chapter 12. If you start in chapter 12, verse 25, Jeroboam goes north and takes over the ten tribes of the north. Rehoboam has Judah and Benjamin in the south. But the Lord had told the nation three times a year, you're going to go to Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Three times a year. That's why in their tithing system, they had three tithes. Two were yearly. One was every third year. Okay? But the one tithe, 10% on the gross, went to the Levites to run the nation and to do 
The other one was on the net, and that was a vacation tie, so they had the money to go three times a year to Jerusalem. I was reading an article, oh man, years ago, about Islam and the Muslims and their trip to Mecca, and how a majority of them never make it because of the money and the cost. And I'm sitting there thinking about, you think about what God did with Israel. A special tithe, by the way, the third tithe every couple years was for the poor and the strangers and to take care of the welfare system that they have. But could you imagine here today in the age of grace if I said, hey, we're going to have an offering and it's going to be a vacation offering. We'd have more money in the offering box than you knew of. Why? Because, you, you know, that's how man thinks. But they literally set the money aside so three times a year they could go. So Jeroboam did not want to lose the people of the north, so he set up a competing system. He set up a vain religious system. Verse 25, 1225. Then Jeroboam built Shechem and Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Isn't that interesting? What's he worried about? Not their spiritual obeying the word. He's worried about his power and his control. <laughs> And, I mean, it doesn't change no matter what the dispensation is. It's all the same. Whereupon, verse 28, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. So he did what Aaron asked, was asked to do with Moses, build us a, and they said what? Behold the gods who pulled you, brought you out of Egypt, but that's not who brought them out of Egypt. And, verse 30, this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan, and he made a house of, uh, of high places, and off he goes. So what does he say? Don't go to... Don't, what do you, I, I think about us today in the age of grace, and, and Bible believers travel to go to church, okay? So what do you mean you go to a little church in Tempe, and you drive an hour or an hour and a half on a Wednesday night, no less? What do you do, what, what are you nuts? Don't, why don't you just go to the little church around the corner from you? Well, because what? They're not teaching the doctrine. They're teaching other things. they got a song and dance going on. So what do you do? You go here. That's what Jeroboam said. Don't go down there to Jerusalem. Just go to the local synagogue. Go right down over here to Bethel and Dan, and you'll be covered. And they did. Now, watch chapter 13. Jeroboam caused them to go into rebellion. And it's fascinating in the Old Testament especially in the minor prophets, when these guys go into rebellion, the Assyrians come and get them, and God lets them have them quickly. And he'll say, don't go there. 
because your sister Judah is going to follow. But if Judah was paying attention, what would they do? They'd have never followed, but where, where, where are we in Mark 3? They followed right along. That's the point. Now, look at verse thir- or chapter 13 and verse 1. Well, you know what? We've got to finish 12 because it goes into 13. So 12, 31. And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not sons of Levi. Isn't that interesting? Let's go get the, the we're going to make the low class the high class now. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high place, which he had made. But So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, and the month which he had devised of his own heart. And that's the issue. Human viewpoint has now replaced the divine viewpoint, the scriptures. And, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar a burnt offering. And behold, now watch God respond to this. 13.1. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to do what? Burn incense. Now, Jeroboam's the king, and he's now the what? The priest. That's a no-no. You don't, that, the, the only individual that would ever hold those three offices outside of Adam in the very beginning is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, David held those three offices as well, uh, king, priest, and prophet, but never at the same time. When he was acted in a priestly function, he was not the king. He was running for his life from Saul. When, and he was always acted kind of in the prophet manner in, in, when we read the Psalms and stuff. But again, that's why you got those little titles above the Psalms so you know where David is when he writes that. And a lot of those are written on the run. He's running for his life. You know, he's been usurped and all this stuff. So 13.1, what's Jeroboam doing? He's not in the right place. He's a king. He's acting as king and priest. Now watch verse 2. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord. This is the man of God, okay? And said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priest of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall, he, shall be burnt upon thee. Now, the man of God's talking to the altar, and, he's, and it's a strange verse. <laughs> he's talking to the altar, and he says, listen, there's a guy coming, Josiah. By the way, we don't see Josiah till 2 Kings 23, some 300 years later. There's seven men pre-named in your Bible, named before they were ever born. You got the Lord Jesus Christ. You got John the Baptist. You know, you're going to call his name Jesus. You're going to call his name John. And you got this guy, Josiah. There's five other guys, Josiah, okay? So when Josiah shows up, 2 Kings 23, what's he going to do? He's going to come in. And he's going to burn up all of the Baal worship. And he's going to do it on that altar. 
And by the way, Jeroboam, he's going to get you right there. Now, obviously, Jeroboam isn't going to be there physically, but what he's setting up. Verse 3, and he gave a sign the same day. Again, the Jews require a sign. This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. Here's the sign of God's judgment on Israel because of their participation in that vain religious system that Jeroboam set up. You want to see it? Here it is. Now, this is where we're at, Mark 3. Similar situation. The Pharisees have the leaders. What have they done? They've set up a system. The withered hand guy over there. Here comes from God's judgment on the, the king here that's introducing the vain religious system to Israel. And then in Mark 3, there he is again. And he's, it's the same religious system in Mark 3 that the Pharisees are doing. And there, there's going to be something as well. Now watch verse 4. And it came to pass... When King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he had cried against the altar in Bethel, and he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Laid hold on him, get him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, did what? Dried up, so that he could not pull it again to him, the withered hand. So just as God just judged the king with it, what's going to happen in Mark 3? going to have a similar situation here now watch verse 5 the altar was also was rent and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord and the king answered and said unto the man of the Lord entreat now the face of the Lord thy God and pray for me that my hand may be restored uh, may be restored me again and the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again, and became as it was before. So his hand is restored. So the question is, is how did he, how was his hand, how was the withered hand restored? It's restored by the word of the Lord. The Lord did it. God's word is going to do this. So when you come back to Mark 3... The guy with the withered hand, he's, that, <laughs> this guy here, it's a sign, and it's a sign that they have been captured by the vain religious system, that satanic captivity, and they had made the Sabbath a part of the Jews' religion, as Paul calls it in Galatians 2, and it's mentioned several times through John. And they have literally taken what God had originally planned and made it into this religious system that causes them to, ha to have no ability to function the way God would have them to function. So in, three, in chapter 3, verse 2, or the end of verse 1, which had a withered hand... This is a sign. And it says, guys, you, Israel out there, that apostate nation. Now, he's, 
going to call the little flock together. He's doing that. Actually, later in chapter 3 here, down in verse 13 and following, he goes and gets the 12 and gets them established. And again, we're in Mark 3. <laughs> this stuff, this is Matthew 10, you know. This is Luke 6. Then Mark is, he's bam, 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 immediately, 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 and, 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 and. He's not wasting time here. So we've traveled a great distance in time-wise, and we're just in Mark 3. But the thing is, is on the day that they were to set the Sabbath, they were to sit and remember what creation was all about. Instead of paying attention to that and being the nation that God needed to function properly, they're over there with a withered hand, not able to function, can't do, can't perform their ministry. So watch verse 2. And they watched him. Watch what they do. They watched him. He, uh, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. Again, what are they looking to do? Accuse him. Now, verse 2 is a very fascinating verse because they, did, they don't question whether or not he could heal. They don't question can he do the miracle or not. They're just watching to see if he would do it because of the Sabbath day. So they know he can do it, yet it doesn't carry them, it doesn't cause them to come to believing who he was, who he kept saying he was, who, as we go through this, we, you know, he's over and over in our study in Luke and in John and in Matthew, over and over again, he's, here it is, here's who I am. They reject him, so what does he do? He withdraws. He deals with the multitudes. Then they reject him. He withdraws again. So they, they didn't get it. Now, I, that's the, the great question. You know, you hear people say, show me a miracle and I'll believe. Luke 16, rich man Lazarus routine. Send somebody from the dead and they'll believe. And Abraham says, no, they won't. They got Moses. Let them hear and read that. Moses and the prophets. Why? Well, show me the miracle and I'll believe. These guys are seeing it, and they don't what? They don't believe. They know he can, they know he can perform the miracle, but they are blinded by their religion. And that's what religion does. That's why in 1 Corinthians over there, uh, chapter, Paul talking about the, blind, the minds of the lost are blinded. And that sits in a context in chapter 3 about Moses being read daily in the, in the synagogues and how he's got the veil on his face. So here we are being religious, and yet what has it led to? Blindness. So they know he can perform the miracle, but what they're missing is the fact that it's the miracles is what the Scripture says that the one doing the miracle is the Messiah, and they're missing it completely. They're not even paying attention to that. They don't believe it. All they're trying to do is stopping, is getting. Even when they see the miracle done, because he's going to heal him here in verse 5, they still get together to kill him. Now, watch what happens here, verse 3. 
And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth, come here. And he said unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. Now, he's going to reason with them in this verse. Is it lawful? There is a thinking process that the scripture is designed and intended to put into people, to the believers, but also to the readers. And that's the issue here of when you have the ability to do good, then you have the obligation to do it. Okay? That's scriptural thinking. All right? I've heard my dad over the years talk about the unsaved people back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, how they don't believe that Christ died for their sins or any of that, but they had a morality about them because of the culture coming through back in the early 1900s, 1800s, had a Bible base to it. Doesn't mean they were believers, but what did they understood? You tell the truth, you do good, you, do, you take care of this, you do that. And that's what's happening here. You have, if you have the ability to do good, then you have the obligation to do it. That's the thinking process that Scripture's design is to produce in people, people out there. Now, think about verse 4, to save life or to kill. But what did they do? They held their peace. By the way, um, look over with me at Matthew 25. A uh, great illustration of this ability to do good, and then they do it. Um, Matthew 25. Matthew 25. You start there in verse 31 when the Lord is, he's come back. His second coming has happened. One of the events in the second coming is he is going to uh, sit here and deal with the Gentile nations. Okay? And he separates the nations out, the Gentiles, the sheep and the goats. The sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left. Verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, here's the sheep, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And then what did they say? When were you that? When did we see you that way? Right? And the end of the verse in verse 40, he says, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. What are the Gentiles doing? They're doing good. They have the ability to do good. They know to do good, and what did they do? They did it. And based on the Abrahamic covenant, now what can God do to them? Bless them. Put them into the kingdom. Okay? But then the crowd, verse 41, then he said also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed and everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Talked about that a little bit Sunday. Stop that rebellion, create hell. Bam. And then he says, when I was a hungered, and he goes through the list, and they're like, what happened? He goes, you didn't do it. 
verse 45, Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of these, the least of ye did it not to me. Did they know to do good? Yeah. And what they didn't do it. And that's a great illustration of what he's doing here in Mark 3, 4. He's like, look, guys, you have the ability, you know to do good, and what are you doing? You're doing evil. You're not doing. So the curse is going to be on you. Verse 4, uh, Mark 3, I'm sorry, go back to Mark 3. And verse 4, you see, if you know to do good, if you know to do good but don't do the good, you're going to reap the curse of it. That's what Mark, Matthew 25 is getting at here with them. Mark 3, verse 4, the end of that verse, but they held their peace. They don't say anything. There's no comment. And that makes him mad. And they're trying to trap the Lord. Um, there was a uh, no comment. So verse 5, and when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. He looks around, and nobody, they don't say a word, and he looks at them with anger. Now, verse 5 carries a lot of trouble with people because of the issue of anger. He's angry. And usually what they say is that anger is a sin. And the emotion anger, it, it, it's sinful. But look at what, look over at Ephesians 4, what our apostle says about that. Because anger is a, is a wonderful emotion. Uh, Ephesians 4.26, be ye angry and what? Sin not. See, you can be angry. And what? Not sin. Now, you can be angry and sin, okay, but be ye angry and not sin. See, anger is not a sinful emotion if it's coupled with uh, the Word of God and who you are in Christ and life in Christ and so forth. But anger can become a sin when it's coupled with malice or self, you know, selfishness then it can be a sin. And by the way, if you drop down and just look there at verse 31 of chapter 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. What's happening there at Ephesus, and it happens in the church as a whole, that they've allowed that emotion of anger to become sinful. So when you, when you hear people say, well, anger, anger is a sin, not necessarily it, when, you're, when it's coupled with who you are in Christ, the Word of God rightly divided, life in Christ, and so forth, then it becomes a great motivating issue. There's two great motivators in our DNA, in our makeup. One is to push you towards something. The other one is to pull you, I'm sorry, to pull you towards something and to push you away from something. Fear and love. That's the, what we're talking about. Love's going to pull you towards something, and fear is going to push you away. Now, fear is 99% of the time just anger in disguise. Okay? 
If you know true fear, I, I, I'm reading a book right now of uh, the Marine Corps in Vietnam, and it's first-hand accounts. It's guys that were there, and it's put together actually rather nicely. I got it from Jerry Dent. He's like, you need to read this. And uh, it's in, and, and those guys had fear. They, it wasn't just an, it was, they were scared to death. You know, you read one guy, and he's like, yeah, you know. We're sitting in our foxhole, and we don't know who's around us. And then they pop off one of those light grenades or whatever they called them and flares, you know, and it's like they're everywhere, you know. And he's like, so this guy hid. He's like, I'm hiding. <laughs> but that's genuine fear. But usually when you're scared, it's just an anger in disguise of that. So if you can't be angry with what's wrong, then you can't have much affection for what's right. If you look around what's going on in our culture and our society and the politics and all the mess, the, all the noise, if you, you can get angry about that and then you can go and affect, have some affection to make it right, help with it. Uh, you're not going to change the world, but you can do it on your level in your community and your your surroundings. So go back to Mark 3. So when he looks at them on anger, he he's look. It's not uh, sin. The Lord isn't sinning here. Uh, this verse gets used to say, "See the Lord sinning," and we'll talk about that in just a second here. When he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved. Isn't that, Ephesians 4 there, grieve not the Holy Spirit, grieve. The Godhead has emotion. You know, grieving is, uh, that's a grief. And by the way, the Lord has grief from other, you know, Isaiah 53, he's numbered with the transgressions, and he's acquainted with grief. And that's the issue here. He's grieved here because of their hardness of their hearts. And that's the point. He's grieved here because of their sin. He's grieved here because of what's happening. So now you get the question of, so you got angry. That's not a sin. But now you're going to talk about the hardening of their hearts. Who was hardening their hearts? Well, he was. Their response to him was what was hardening their hearts. Now, come back to Proverbs 29. Because... The question gets, again, it's all, it gets troubling for some because they've got this idea that before the foundation of the world, God said this is what's going to happen, you know, that Calvinistic viewpoint, and that's not the case at all. How does God harden, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? That's the big illustration, when, okay? That's the great question. How does God harden your heart? How do you harden your heart? So, hardening, look, 29.1, Proverbs 29, verse 1. This verse helps understand the issue of hardening their hearts. He, that being oft reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Notice what the verse doesn't say, which is what all religion makes it say. He that being often reproved hardeneth and his neck. 
they throw that word and in there. And they'll do it in, talk, in their talk, okay? But it doesn't say and. You see, it says what? Being often reproved does what? Hardeneth his neck. Much re- reproof. Heart, if you don't respond positively to the reproof, the desire, reproof, uh, Paul, he talks about doctrine, reproof, and correction, and instruction. Reproof is, you've got some bad behavior, and here's the mechanisms to clean that up. And if you resist that, the more you hear God's word and reject what you're hearing, then what happens to your heart? It hardens. And the more instruction you get, then the more... The, the, the more insensitive you get, the more fixed in your position you get. You, you can't be moved. You, you're, you're, you're not going to go anywhere. You're going to dig in. And again, in, in Paul in 1 Timothy, he talks about the conscience, or 2 Timothy, conscience being seared with a hot iron. You ever see the, you know, the cowboy shows? And they take the knife and, and I'm like, yeah, okay. But that's the idea. Uh, I was watching some guys brand cattle one time in, you know, in live and in color, as they like to say. And it, that sear there, what does it do? It makes a scab, makes a scar tissue. And on the conscience, you sear that conscience with the hot iron, then what can't get in there? The Word of God, the light, doesn't can't, can't get through. Now, if you're pounding on it long enough, eventually it does, and, and Timothy t- talks that way. But the ability, it cuts off the ability of God's Word to work. It makes it of none effect. When they're doing their tradition, that vain religious system, that's, that's the mess they're in. And when the Lord looks out there, go back there to Mark 3. When the Lord looks out there at them, he sees that. He's been giving the, he's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's time. Here it is. He's doing them all the miracles to back it up. And they just keep rejecting it. And as he looks at them, he sees the hardening process happening in their hearts he knows what's going on he's well aware of it and spiritually what's going on here is they're hardening their hearts and that's what grieved him and that is what caused him to be angry at their sin angry with with what's going on okay and again uh, come over to john chapter 12 show you another passage similar to this so when he looks out there, I, again, Mark 3, 5, I, I've seen people stumble and break their spiritual necks on it because they're trying to make it say something that it's not saying, and that's it, when he looked out there. So when Paul talks about all scriptures given by inspiration is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and you go read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, books of reproof, Galatians, book of, of correction. Correction is, let's fix the bad doctrine. Reproof, let's fix the bad behavior. 
And he looks at Corinth and he says, I say all this, but not to your shame. But so you wouldn't be taken over by the wiles of the devil. That's my paraphrase, okay? They rejected that. And it just over and over and over and over. Uh, John 12, look at verse 36. John 12 and verse 36. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus, and departed, and did hide himself from them. Again, he talks to them, he withdraws. Verse 37, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they, what, believed him not, not on him. Verse 39, therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, because of, they. so think about that. He did all these miracles, the end of verse 37, they didn't believe him. And then in verse 39, he says, no, they couldn't believe. Well, what did Proverbs 29.1 say? Much reproof, hardeneth the heart. They didn't believe the word of God. Verse, look at verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? They didn't believe. Therefore, verse 39, they couldn't believe. Verse 40, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. That's what happened. How did he blind them? Through the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, through the many miracles. And instead of believing who he is and what he was saying to be the, be the case, they weren't worried about what God says. Rather, they're worried about, is he going to violate our tradition over here? Are they going to Go back to Mark 3. Are they going to violate the ceremonial Sabbath day that we've set up and established as being a holy day all the time? So the hardness of their heart is what grieved him and is what brought him down uh, to that point of anger. Now, watch verse 5, because watch what his anger did. Watch what his anger motivated him to do. But when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their heart, now watch what he does. He saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. His anger motivated him to heal the man. The religious crowd, they're sitting waiting to see what he's going to do. So the Lord shows them what he can do. They don't believe him. Or they don't, and they don't believe any. The healing made them mad. So mad, verse 6. We'll pick up here next time because of the hour. And I got one more thing in verse 5 to do. But the healing of this guy on the Sabbath made them so mad. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. 
And the thing is, is the Pharisees and the Herodians were arch enemies. They're not friends. They don't like each other. The Herodians are politicians. The Pharisees are fundamentalist religious guys. They don't get along, and yet, but yet again, the enemy of my enemy is now my friend. And here in the moment, against the Lord, they become friends. And they're literally going to come back to Psalms too. This, this is so fascinating. Literally, they're doing what Psalms 2 said they're going to do. Psalms 2.1. They're literally doing exactly what Scripture says they're going to do and actually what's going to lead them into the 70th week of Daniel, into the tribulation. Psalms 2, verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So we know who the heathen are, the Gentiles. The people, there's Israel, and what are they doing? They're imagining vain things. The kings of the earth set themselves. They're the, the kings, the Herodians. And the rulers, there's the Pharisees, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. They're fighting together. They're fighting against the Father. And, okay, they're fighting against Jehovah. By the way, Acts chapter 4 says that that's a reference to what leads up to the crucifixion of Christ and then subsequently the little flock's persecution. So in Mark 3, they're going to start the go after him and kill him, verse 6, and we'll get into verse 6 next time. Actually, verse 7, uh, Mark 3, 7, but Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed in him and from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon and a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. The people are ready to receive him and to hear him, yet the leaders, not so. Their hearts are hardened. And literally what's going to happen, starting in verse 6 now, down to verse 12, is we have a dispensational move within the program again, and where he's going to start to withdraw himself and move away from the, the, the nation He's going to deal with the multitudes. He eventually, he's going to pull from them. But then in verse 13, he calls the apostles and that establishment of the leadership of the little flock and so forth, and we'll see all that. Okay? Now, Mark 3, verse 5, run back, run over to, compare that with Matthew 5, verse 22. There's something just in here to notice uh, and, and just to be aware of. Okay? Now, we'll pick up in verse 6 next time and go down through uh, the next set of verses and so forth. You got Mark 3, 5. And when he had looked around about on them with anger. Okay? Now, look at Matthew 5 and look at verse 22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Did we miss? We messed three words, didn't we? Without a cause. Every new Bible pulls out without a cause. They mess with it. So they're messing with what? 
the deity of the Lord. They're making him a sinner. Because he, it, if you look at 522, that whosoever is angry with his brother, was Jesus in Mark 3, 5 angry with his brethren? Yeah, he's angry with them. But, so without a cause, now does he have cause in Mark 3? Yes. So he's not a sinner. But what happens is, is they use this to say that Jesus Christ literally was not sinless. And they attack, they bring his deity into great doubt. And, uh, the, and also they bring in the, the reliability of the word into great doubt. So don't forget that. You'll hear people say, oh, he's, he's sinless, or I'm sorry, he has sin, you know, and they'll come in and they'll use Matthew 5.22 because it pulls out that without a cause. And then they'll take you to Mark 3 and say, see, look, he was angry, and anger is a sin, don't you know? And you're sitting there going, no, no, no. The only Bible on the market that protects the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is the King James Bible. The rest of them don't. They attack it. And they do it subtly, sneakily. I was reading an article a couple months ago. The uh, NIV guy, the big boards that run the NIV and all that stuff, they have, over the years, had to correct their previous editions with the new edition because the people have called them on the carpet about making Joseph his father and some of those things you're going, no, because what happened? They're, the Bible they're using is now in contradiction to their doctrinal statement. Now, you should always trust your Bible over a doctrinal statement. <laughs> but they're looking at their doctrinal statement going about the virgin birth, and then they go to their Bible, and what did it do? It just attacked. So they had a, they had a little upheaval amongst Christ, Christendom out there, and so they've had to correct some of that. This one they haven't corrected yet as of what I had sitting on my desk, okay? Just see what's happening in Mark 3. The withered hand guy, again, the Lord didn't heal people just to have a healing program. He healed folks as a sign, as a picture, as a validation of where Israel was spiritually, their spiritual condition, who he was, the message about the kingdom coming and so forth. And again, right here again, they nail him. He, or, I'm sorry, he nails them. They're trying to kill him. And literally, if again, we're in Mark 3. This is Matthew 12. This is Luke 6, Matthew 10. And Mark has just moved right to this point to bring in, again, Mark's picturing him as the servant. And the servant is full of activity. But what are they trying to do to the servant? Capital S. They're trying to kill him now. And... So the stage is becoming set, okay? By the way, if you just to remind you, Mark 1, there in verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, and all the new Bibles say Isaiah, and then they quote Malachi. So you got an issue. There's a problem there, <laughs> okay? All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word, for the study of it, for the wonderful uh, insight into how you dealt in your earthly ministry with your people, with the nation of Israel, and uh, what you will do one day as the Lord of Sabbaths.
and accomplish all that you had planned originally to accomplish. In your name we pray. Amen.